Good morning, everybody. It is good to be here again after several weeks of being gone. Um, I do feel like we're, you know, I grew up as a missionary kid, so I'm kind of used to the idea of having multiple homes, many homes, and making new homes as I go. It's always nice to go back to a place that I call home, and I don't think that'll ever stop being the case here. We have been worshiping uh, mostly at a church called Solid Word. It's a African-American church. It's an E-free church, which I was pleasantly surprised to find out about. Um, I like something. I like some of their traditions and ideas. Um, and so it's on the west side, and it's been it's been a really great experience for us. We'll t- tell you more about it after church if you want to hear more. I am I am thankful though, just thinking about that this is a sending church as well. A church that a year and a half ago, when I said it's time for me to consider other things, the church leadership said go. And we're with you. So thank you for that. Our passage today is um, it's a passage about grief. It's a passage about pain. It's about the pain and the grief that Jesus bore. Um, so we're going to explore that a little bit. We're going to look through these three stories that are mentioned here and just kind of look at the kinds of grief and pain that Jesus might have borne. And also just talk about, secondly, why he would have done that. And what was the reason that Jesus needed to bear that grief and that pain? And finally, we're going to look at our own. How do we interact with this, with our own grief and pain? So as we begin, I just want to invite you to consider what are some of the areas of grief and pain that you carry? Maybe it's burdens that you carry for others or for yourself, your family. Maybe it's sin that's wrecking your life. Maybe it's you know, unspeakable things that you don't want to ever tell anybody and they're Something you just carry and you think, this is mine only. I can only bear it by myself. Um, maybe it's just the daily grind, uh, the paper cuts of life that continue to, to just eat away at all of us. We all experience grief and pain. And so we're going to ask that question too. How do we approach this passage with our grief and pain? What do we do with it? One thing that's interesting about this passage, what comes before it, actually the whole of Luke 22, is that there's lots and lots of time references. Um, from the very beginning, there's now... The Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near. Then Satan entered Judas. Then came the day when the Passover had to be sacrificed. And when the hour came, then Jesus sits down and he says, I will not eat until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. There's many, many time references. And the verse right before our passage today, verse 53, reads this way. It's one of the most powerful statements in this whole chapter, I think. It, It took me by surprise when I read it. It wasn't one I felt familiar with. It says, as he is being arrested, it says this. He says, when I was with you day and night in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. And as I saw that and I thought, that's kind of a really strong introduction to these next three stories. And there's even a framing of time at the end in the last story where Jesus kind of frames all of these stories with a, a time marker. But this one's really interesting, and I started to think, what was it like for Jesus knowing that this was the hour of darkness, the hour of the power of darkness? And what was he doing as he goes into, towards the cross? And I just got this visual impression of him going deeper and deeper into grief, deeper and deeper into pain, willing to go where all of us suffer. And it's this descent a continuous descent towards the cross and the grave. There's a denial by a close friend. There's mocking by the crowd. There's accusations being made against Jesus by religious leaders. So these three stories, those three stories I just mentioned, each sort of have a different group in mind of people. The first one, of course, is the friend. This is Peter who, 
has been full of bravado and machismo and blustering as through the whole you know, gospel saying, Jesus, I've got your back. I'm going to be with you to the end. You can count on me. I'll be there for you. And in the passage just before this, uh, Luke doesn't tell us who. Someone cuts, takes a sword and cuts off the ear of the servant of the uh, temple servant. And um, we know from John that that's Peter. Luke doesn't mention that, but Peter has just proven that he's willing to go all out for Jesus. He's this incredible person. And then Jesus says, put away the sword. And I kind of just wonder, like, what was, what was going on after that? Why would Peter go into the next scene and not be able to make a simple stand with Jesus? Why couldn't he do this? We'll talk about that later. But for now, just considering what was Jesus' experience of that? What was the darkness that he felt here? Perhaps it was something you've experienced too. Maybe a friend who knows how to say all the right words, but when it comes, you know, push comes to shove, they just don't follow through. They're just not able to do what they say they will do for you. Um, this is also a, a person that Jesus has invested mightily in. He's discipled him. He's, he's prayed for Peter that Satan would not have him. I mean, he has struggled for Peter. And then here he is. It seems like he's falling apart, not able to stand. He's one of those sheep that's just fallen, that's going astray. Or maybe it's like a child. And some of us have experienced this when a child grows up and they tend to they kind of walk away. It's very painful. In the second story, um, Jesus has a different kind of crowd around him. It's a crowd that's been sent by the priests. It's probably a mix of temple guards, Roman soldiers, thugs. It's like everybody's there in the mix. And they're holding Jesus until the Sanhedrin, the, the Jewish council, can meet. They're not allowed to really do anything official till daybreak. So through the night, there's this crowd just kind of holding Jesus. And um, as they do, they're beating him. And as they beat him, they mock him. And they slap him. They blindfold him and they start beating him and asking him to prophesy which one of us hit you. They make a game out of it, a children's game. Which is ironic because all through chapter 22 of Luke, Jesus has been making all kinds of predictions that are coming true. He predicts this man who's going to meet them and give them a room for their Passover. He predicts his own death. He predicts... Sorry, he predicts that Judas will betray him, and he predicts Jesus' denial. Luke is very clear in saying Jesus can make accurate predictions, and here he's silent. He doesn't play the game, but he's being beaten. Um, in fact, he's actually, Jesus predicted this in Luke 18. He actually predicted that he would be mocked, that he would be beaten, that he'd be spit upon, shamefully treated. So what is this grief? I mean, it's all kinds of things, right? But one of the things I was just thinking was, this is Jesus's... I mean, they're, they're saying, can you do the things that you say you can do? And um, they're asking him to prove his power. And how do we feel when our abilities are questioned? Maybe in a work situation, even where your judgment is questioned, where your ideas aren't considered good enough. We, don't, we just, don't we feel the grief and the pain of that? And how we just ache for someone to understand us, to believe us. And here's Jesus, who has all authority and power, but is being questioned. And even today, we as the church experience that when the, the world says, where is your God? Where is your God in the face of man's inhumanity to man? Why doesn't he stop this evil? There's plenty of proud mockers and scoffers in our day as well. And this is the kind of grief and pain that we bear as well. And Jesus is bearing in this story, this public humiliation. In the third story, um, these, the authorities, the religious authorities... And um, what, what's their accusation? They're basically saying, prove your legitimacy... The accusation is that, Jesus, you're an imposter. Are you really the only way? That's how a modern person might put it. 
Are you really able to save completely? Or do we need to add something to what you've done, Jesus? We do this all the time. We say, Jesus, are you an imposter? And I think we all understand the grief and the pain of trying to figure out like, what it looks like to be in the face of, in a public area and have somebody call us out and say, you don't have what it takes, Jesus. And you're not, a, you're not legitimate. In fact, he kind of deals with them back and forth on this and says, if, I, if, if, if I'm asking you, you aren't even going to answer me. And if I tell you, you won't believe me. And that's exactly what's happened earlier. When, when they were asking him in uh, Luke 20, they say, by whose authority are you doing these things? Uh, or Jesus asked them, said, well, then where's the baptism of John coming from? And they refused to answer. And Jesus is just kind of calling them at their game and saying, this is what we've been doing already. I'm not going to play this game with you. I'm going to be silent before you. In some ways, this is a, a type of injustice that Jesus is dealing with uh, where there's a small group of people. And we're very familiar with this concept these days in our culture where a small group of people set up a system to keep power, to keep their power and authority in their hands. Privileged few at the expense of the masses. That's a grief and a pain that many in our culture today bear as well. So what's really interesting at the end of that third story is that second time mark I was telling you about. Jesus that begins with this place where Jesus says, this is, the, this is your hour and the power of darkness. But in front of his judges, in front of these temple, uh, the priests, the Sanhedrins, uh, the, sorry, the priests and the scribes and the Pharisees, um, he is saying, he says this, he says, from now on, there's that time marker, from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. At the end of this, these three stories, Jesus sort of flips the tables, doesn't he? And he doesn't, he's not going gently into that good night. He says, I'm the Son of Man from Daniel 7. The one who is, rides on the clouds of heaven comes and present, is presented by, before the Ancient of Days and receives the glory and the power and the dominion. And he's also saying, I'm at the right hand of God, which is a reference to Psalm 110, this messianic psalm where the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. So the timing that Jesus is talking about is so interesting. He's basically saying, you think this is the end of what you're going to deal with with me, but it is just the beginning. All the scheming, all the pride of man to pull Jesus down, all of the rejection, all of the hurt, all the betrayal comes down to this, that all their scheme, all their pride comes to nothing. It will not have the last word. Their timing was off. They weren't aware or they wouldn't listen or they refused to understand that he would be their judge someday. So the last word that Jesus is proclaiming here is that he has the authority, that he has the power, and that the risen Jesus who sits on the throne will be the judge of these situations where there is grief and pain and there is rejection and humiliation. It's not the end. It's the beginning of something new. One thing I was wondering as I was looking at this passage is why did Jesus have to go through this suffering? I mean, if he paid for our sins, he could have just done that by being executed in a humane way, right? I mean, it's the death that counted, right? And as you just look at these three stories, Luke doesn't give us a whole lot of context. He doesn't explain why these stories are important, even though he gives a lot of attention to, to them. But I think that's probably because Luke knew that his audience had the context already in mind. It's very clear what's happening here to Jesus is the context of Isaiah 53. There's no way his readers would have missed that fact. Listen to some of these, just a few passages from Isaiah 53, just a few lines. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. 
He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. So it's very clear that Isaiah 53, that's what's happening right now. That's prediction made six or 700 years before this is coming true in front of Luke's audience as they're reading this, these three stories. They're engaging with it with this backdrop. It's very clear that's what's happening. So I think as we look at this passage from Isaiah 53, we can start to understand why did Jesus need to suffer? Isaiah is giving us some reasons. And here they are. Listen to this. From verse 4, it says, He has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. Verse 5 has this line. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Our tradition uh, puts a great deal of emphasis on the sort of substitutionary nature of the atonement and this legal uh, thing that truly occurred. And it's actually in Isaiah 53 as well. It's all over the place. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Uh, The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. That is very clearly central. But there's other things going on here as well. One of them is that Jesus is going through darkness into darkness into darkness bearing the griefs of his people and carrying their sorrows. Christ did die in our place that we could have eternal life and he also suffered that he could carry us in our present suffering. So that's our third section here. How is that possible? What are we going to do with our grief, our sorrow, and our pain? Let's go back to the story of Peter as he's denying Jesus. Um, People see him. A girl says, I've seen you. She sees him. You're one of those. Another person says, I see you. And she looks intently at him. And, uh, or closely. She peers at him. Pretty sure you're a Galilean. Everybody's seeing Peter. And Peter's deflecting and ducking. He's like, no, no. Don't see me in that way. That's not who I am. And then Luke uses a different word. Um, not one of the common words. Uh, actually, blepo in Greek is a common word. But he actually emphasizes it and says emblepo. Which means that. Jesus sort of, he actually turns. That word implies that he's turning away from his own purposes. He's facing the cross. But just for a second, he turns and he looks at Peter in this special way. The only other time um, this word is used um, is in uh, 2017. So Luke 20, he only uses this word twice. And it's a really interesting passage because it's a passage about the rejection of the Messiah. He tells a parable about Uh, These tenants who have a vineyard and the landlord keeps sending messengers to them and they keep beating up the the messengers and sending them away. And then finally the landlord says, well, I'll send my son. Surely they'll listen to my son and we can come to this agreement. And instead they kill the son. And then in the parable, the landlord comes in judgment to kill these wicked tenants and give it to someone else. And then Jesus uses this, he, this word, Luke uses this word, emblepo. He looks at them in the same way and says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. He's pointing out that they are the ones who are rejecting him and that they will be crushed as a result. And I think there's something going on here with Peter that's very similar. See, Peter has been, um, he just gave his all. He gave everything he had in the Garden of Gethsemane. He, he's, he, he did this huge thing for Jesus. And Jesus sort of says no. So how does Peter feel? Probably like dismissed, discouraged. 
disillusioned? Does, does Peter feel betrayed by Jesus? And what we see is that he turns and he weeps bitterly. This response is a type of grief. Peter's bearing some grief in this moment. But it's what I believe Paul would call, um, from 2 Corinthians 7.10, what Paul would call worldly grief. Because Paul says that kind of grief leads to death. And here we have Peter losing sight of Jesus again. Just like when he took his eyes off of Jesus when he was walking on the water to Jesus and he looks away and he falls. Here he is again. He's drowning under the waves of death. He's full of guilt and shame. Another form of hiding. Jesus' look at Peter, I think, is a very interesting thing. And I think it's a place we can start to understand how we deal with our own grief and pain. When, when I read this passage, just quickly, I've always thought of this as like a shaming look. You know, that parent look like, mm, you're messing up. Kids, you know that look, right? Your parents have a special look. Or maybe even the way they call your name. You know that you're supposed to feel ashamed. You're, so, you're meant to feel guilty. And that's kind of how I've always read this passage. As if, Jesus... I told you so, Peter. I knew you would deny me, and you did. You should feel bad, and Peter goes out and weeps. Because that's how it makes sense to me in my flesh, right? That's how, that's how I experience shame as well. But I actually think there's something else going on here that's not a look designed to elicit shame, even though that's where Peter goes with it. See, I don't think Peter loves Jesus less right now. I think he just... The, the, the Jesus that he loved, the Jesus that would like him to pull his sword and defend him, that whole Jesus has been dismantled for, for Peter. He loved a version of the Messiah that isn't in front of him. And his, his version of Jesus, his vision for who Jesus should be as it collapses, he responds um, much as those who were rejecting the cornerstone. He's crushed by the weight of it. He falls into shame and despondency. But again, I don't think this is what Jesus intended. And why not? Here's why I think this. Because we have testimony in the scriptures from Peter in Acts, but then again in 1 Peter chapter 2. So we're going to go there, just going to end this sermon with just looking through 1 Peter 2, because Peter weaves the themes of these stories into 1 Peter 2 and provides commentary. Now this is a Peter on the other side of the resurrection. And we know from John that he's had this amazing reconciliation with Jesus. Now he knows who Jesus is. Now he knows the purposes of Christ and what a risen Lord means for the grief and the pain of our own hearts when we betray Jesus even. So he wrote this whole chapter. So let me, if you want to look there, you can. I'm going to read a few verses and just kind of pick out three lessons from 1 Peter 2. And it's, I think it's super amazing that we have this testimony from Peter himself about how we should think about these stories. So first of all, this is 1 Peter 2, verses 21 and 22. He says, for to the, and he's writing to a church that's going through persecution and suffering. He says, for to this you have been called, this suffering. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And here's our lesson. First lesson. Three lessons from this passage. Peter explains Christ's ability to go into this place of grief and darkness for his people, being fueled by having this trusting spirit. By trusting in one who ju truly judges, who judges justly. 
not these monkey courts or shambles of, you know, this messed up system of man. And that's why Jesus could stand in front of them and tell them who he was trusting. Now that from now on, I will be with my judge. You're not my judge. In fact, I will be judging you. So given that lesson, what would we say when Jesus looks at Peter and he turns and peers closely and he looks at him this special way, what's he probably really saying? He's probably really saying, Peter, these people that you're hiding from, they're not really seeing you. They're trying to tell you something about yourself that isn't true. I see you the way I intended to recreate you. I'm doing this new thing. There's a new thing about to happen, and that's when I look at you what I see. And as they try to revile you, even as you did to me, just do as I do. Trust in the one who judges justly. Trust in the judge myself. Trust my judgment. So I do believe that this look was a look of judgment. I do believe that Christ looks at us with a trust, with a look of judgment. And we are somehow supposed to trust him in this space, as Jesus also did. Not go into weeping bitterly, but looking up with hope. Now, how do we find that? How is there hope when there's judgment from Jesus? Let's look at the second lesson. Look, keep going in 1 Peter 2, verses 24 and 25. It says, He himself bore our sins and his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And then he quotes from Isaiah 53, By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So that's the second lesson. The judgment that is upon you was rendered in Christ's body on the tree where he said it's finished and he has brought you healing. You've been healed by the wounds of Christ. So the judgment is in and the judgment is this. Righteousness is yours. You're dead to sin. Not that you don't ever or won't ever sin again, but sin has no ability to sort of cling to you anymore. It can't claim you as part of the kingdom of darkness. So when Jesus is walking down this descent into the, into the grave, literally, through the cross, he's touching the grief and the sorrow and the pain along the way of human existence. He's declaring every captive free. And this is the healing for our wounds. Peter describes it as sort of a coming home experience. It's a wandering sheep coming, who's been astray from Isaiah 53, being positioned right next to the shepherd and overseers of our souls. Peter had this experience himself. He was that wandering sheep in this story. And now as he writes this book to a suffering church, he says, I found my home in Christ, the shepherd of our souls. So lesson two is claim the righteousness of Christ as our own. Jesus' chastisement, his experience of rejection, his being reviled, his pain, his grief, and his hurt become the basis of healing for us. He went to all those places of rejection and pain for us. Third lesson, also from 1 Peter 2, but let's go uh, forward or up higher in the passage, verses 4 and 5. He says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men. So he's talking about Christ. Christ is rejected stone uh, by the builders. He says, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. In verse 6, 
He says, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Jesus was rejected by men in the pain, the darkness of pain and grief. He was even rejected by the man who wrote these words, Peter himself. He was rejected by you. and He was rejected by me. I know that for sure. But Jesus was chosen by God and therefore precious. Peter uh, pulls in this metaphor of the rejected stone becoming the cornerstone again. And he says, in the same way. Those words mean that we, again, are to imitate Christ in this. We become living stones. We become chosen and precious to God. We become a priesthood then that is able to bring acceptable gifts to God through Jesus Christ. There is no putting to shame in this new era that Jesus announces here. This is the conclusive evidence, I believe, for why when Jesus looks at Peter, he is not trying to elicit shame in Peter. He's not trying to make him feel worse for what he's just done. I think he's saying, I see you. You're someone I'm choosing. You're precious to me. And I'll see you on the other side of this cross. And I'll explain it all then. I I think Jesus wanted to communicate something like that to him, probably. No, it wasn't shame. Peter didn't have his eyes on the other side of that cross. He didn't understand the resurrection yet. He hadn't, he'd been told, but he hadn't really got it yet. And so he crumpled. He's grieving for himself, the betrayer. It's this worldly grief. But here in 1 Peter, we have a Peter who does know what it's like on the other side of the resurrection. And here we have a man who's full of confidence, a man who's not ashamed. So what do we do with our grief and our pain? We remember that we are sheep, that we're straying sheep. When we, when we think about the fact that we are the ones who revolt against God, against his mercy and grace, that we are sinners, that's one of the hardest griefs to bear at all, isn't it? Those moments where it just hits home. Let me just give you two things to think about in a space like that. When you're really dealing with the grief of your own sin and betrayal. First is that I told you that Paul called what I think Peter's doing here worldly grief. But he contrasts that with a different kind of grief. In 2 Corinthians 7.10, there's a godly grief as well. And that's what I think we are supposed to walk in. We're supposed to have this sort of godly grief. And how do we know it's godly grief? Because he says, Paul says that it's a grief that produces A repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Without regret. That's crazy. We're not even supposed to look back on our sin and regret it. We're supposed to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. God is so good when he looks at us and he sees us in our sin, in the moments of our weakness, of our own grief and pain, of our own betrayals even, of, of Christ, of God. And he sees us and offers us acceptance and that creates space for us to turn God is always looking at us so that we can turn and move back to where we need to be with him that's what we're supposed to do have a lifestyle of repentance not to apologize over and over again for the same sin but to be on a path where when we see that oh this is not the direction I'm supposed to be going we say we look at God we say meet me in this space God creates that place for us to turn and move back in to where we need to be with him. That grief, that momentary grief, has a role to play in our lives. We do need to embrace this grief, the grief of our own sin. Jesus walked into that grief of loss and pain to set captives free. And that's our confidence. He did it so that we could be perfected. 
The second thing I just want you to think about as you're going into those spaces of grief and pain, whether it's for your sin or any other kind, really, um, in Hebrews chapter 10, these amazing words, it says, Since we have confidence, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened us for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, that's referencing the cross, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Matt, often when he's leading, talks about not being bowled over in our shame. Have you heard him say that before? Many times, I think I have. (laughs) But it's great. That's exactly the posture we're supposed to have. We're supposed to kneel, confess our sins, and stand and receive the grace and the mercy of Christ in that moment. When Christ sees us in our grief, in our pain, in our secret and shameful sins, he judges that we belong to him. That's his judgment. So what do we do? We walk confidently. In other words, we lift our eyes up. We don't turn away with weeping. We lift our eyes up to the shepherd of the sheep. We meet the gaze of our Lord Jesus Christ. And here's what we say. We say, yes, I am acceptable to you because I believe in you. He's saying these words. I'm just going to close with these. You've won for me full forgiveness, just as I am. O Lamb, I come. Peter says in 1 Peter 2, as you come to him, set free from fear, I can confess, just as I am. O Lamb, I come. I leave my rags of righteousness, just as I am. O Lamb, I come. For now I wear your holiness, just as I am. O Lamb, I come. Let's pray.